before we worship you in song, Lord, each Sunday we ask for faith to see you as you are. And you are answering that prayer, God. Thank you. We pray that now as we sit down and open your word, God, you would open our hearts to you. Put more clarity who you are, who Christ is, what you are, not only for us, but for the world. God, just keep lifting our hope, our faith, our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. You'll open your Bibles to Acts 18. Acts 18, verses 9 through 11 will be our text for this morning, which begins, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. There's a phrase that every once in a while I stumble upon in an old theology book, and that phrase is exemplar par excellence, which is always, you know, just sounds fun to say, exemplar par excellence. And it's just this idea of being the prime example of something. And every once in a while you'll hit a scripture that appears to be the exemplar par excellence of a particular aspect of the Christian life or a particular part of ministry. When we were in Acts 17 and we saw Paul's address to Mars Hill, that was, I believe, and the exemplar par excellence example of how to share Christ with the people who don't know the scriptures. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the best examples you can find in all the Bible of an apologetic method of reasoning the truthfulness of Jesus out to people who don't believe in the Bible. And today we're at Acts 18, and I think we have another exemplar par excellence of exemplar par excellence of something else. This is a very unique verse, a very unique section of scripture that I just read to you this morning. Because almost all the time in the Bible, whenever any act of evangelism is described, we observe God's work on those who are hearing the gospel message. Almost any time we read about the gospel going forth, what is described for us in the scriptures is what God does among those who hear the message. But here in the verses that I just read in Acts 18, 9 through 11, we have the opposite view. We see God working on the who is supposed to preach the message. So most of the time, the scriptures give us a view of God working on those who are being preached to. And in this particular passage, we have an insight into God working on the one who is to do the preaching. And that's pretty unique as we go through scripture. Now, by inference, we do see God's work both on those who preach, the one who preaches, and those who hear. And we'll get into that in a minute. But, the, but the, the work we see God doing on those who hear the message is implicit, but the work we see on the one who's doing the messaging, Paul, that's explicit. And so this is a sweet text because I guess one way that I was thinking about it, I just kept coming out of me when I was writing all this, was we see Jesus playing at both sides of the ball. We see Jesus working in both those whom he, he saves 
and in those whom he sends. And that's a beautiful thing. So with that, let me read that passage again to you so you can see it. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So one of the things I'd like you to see this morning is that there is choice, sovereign choice happening in this text on both sides. Sovereign choice happening on both sides. This statement that Jesus makes, I have many in this city. That's a statement of election. It's, it's Jesus saying, I have many in this city who I have appointed unto eternal life who have yet to believe. And this is a theme, this theme of God's sovereign choice in saving people is a theme we see in the book of Acts elsewhere. One of the most exemplar par excellence texts of election is Acts 13, 48, where we see Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel to a group of Gentiles, and Acts 13, 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So one of the things that we see in this little section of Scripture we're considering today is we see choice on both sides, God's choice, on both sides, Jesus is telling Paul that in Corinth, there are many who are appointed to eternal life. There are many whom Jesus has already claimed as his own, but they're just on spiritual layaway. And I just threw that in for all of the people who are Gen X and older who remember what layaway was. Uh, Jesus has got a bunch of people in Corinth on layaway, except all the payments have been made. They just have to go to the back counter of Walmart, pick the thing up, you know. We'll talk more about why this and how this figures into evangelism, but it's almost as if God's call to share the gospel is almost as if he buys you a new car and says, it's still on the lot. Now, with, with the other hundreds of cars, which of course doesn't work right now, a lot recently, but let's say God bought you a car in 2019. He said, hey, I bought you a car. It's still on the lot. Here are the keys. And your job is to go throughout those 200 cars, hitting the unlock button until you hear the one that's yours. And this is the way that God has actually designed the gospel sharing mission to take place. And we see that here as he's saying to Paul, Paul, there are people here as you push the button of the gospel will chirp. <laughs> those are mine. You, I'm just not going to tell you which ones. And next week we'll talk about why did God do it? What's God doing there? But that, that, that gospel, that sovereign choice of God is evident here. So we could say, first sub-point of choice on both sides is we see God's sovereign choice of those whom he will save. The second point, point B, is God also chooses whom he will send. And this is crucial. This is why this conversation is happening. Because if God's choice of Paul wasn't as firm as his choice of everybody else. If God's choice to make Paul his instrument wasn't firm, God would just move on to someone else. What we see here is not only that he has many in this city who are his, but he has this man named Paul who is his chosen instrument to bring the gospel. 
So God chooses whom he will save and he chooses those who he will send. And God's sovereignty over both of those is fixed. It just is what it is. Now, some might object, because like, I want to I throw this out to you. That not, I said it this way. God chooses those whom he will save, and God chooses those whom he will send. Let me say it a little bit more disruptively. That's also biblically. God chooses those he will save, and he also chooses those who will be the savers. And we don't like that kind of language, but it's biblical. And if we start trying to kind of speak more theologically correct than God, we are losing things. So Paul says repeatedly in a number of texts that he is saving someone. Now, what he doesn't mean, we all know, is he doesn't mean that it's he who has actually shed any blood for the atonement or justification of those whom will be saved. But he sees his calling, his position as an instrument to be, surprise, instrumental. And so Paul will occasionally talk about saving some, right? For instance, in 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul writes, to the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. And there are those who would want to be more reformed than the Apostle Paul and say, I'm sorry, Paul, but you're not doing the saving. And Paul would say, I just said something that was inspired by God. Let's just leave it like this. Let's not try to speak more theologically correct than God. In 1 Corinthians 7.16, he commands husbands and wives to remain together Uh, remain with unmarried believers if the unbeliever consents to remain married. And he concludes this teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, 16 by saying, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So God chooses those whom he will save and he chooses those he will send who are the instruments of the saving His sovereign choice is over every bit of it. Every detail of the conversion of every single sinner who will ever be saved has been entirely settled. And this includes, and this is the thing we've got to kind of adjust to, that we we neglect. This includes not only those who will be saved, but also those who will be the instruments of that salvation. So God's sovereign choice in this text is displayed both by the fact that he has many in this city and by the fact that he has chosen Paul to be the instrument to bring them the gospel. And the third point in this first point is most sovereign choices feel quite human. Most sovereign choices feel quite human. Look back at verse 4 of chapter 18. This describes Paul's kind of approach to ministry. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And the words reasoned and persuade, these are just very simple, common words implying human means. Paul did his best using reason and persuasion to help people to see that Jesus was the Christ. And I think that's important just because we have to understand that even though we know behind 
the scenes that God is doing everything. God is doing the saving. He's doing the sending. He's speaking through Paul and so on and so forth. I think it's important that we remember that to people involved, this mostly just feels like choice. And, and I, think, I think you'll see why that matters down the line. But what I want you to notice here is, is that Paul, through reason and persuasion, is simply acknowledging that the gospel works on human will, on human intellect, on the human heart, and manifests itself in what appears to be merely a human being making a choice to trust Christ. So those who are chosen to be saved will make a choice to be saved. Why does this matter? Well, I mean, this matters like a million reasons. What am I getting at? Many of you in your neglect of sharing the gospel have some mystical expectation that something other than choice, hard work, tactics, disciplines will somehow whirl you up into a whirlwind in which you will suddenly find yourself like Balaam's donkey spewing the gospel to someone. Like, no, it's just going to, God's going to do it, but it's going to feel like a choice. It's just going to feel like a choice. You'll be able to know because of God's word that there's more going on than just you. And certainly in retrospect, you'll be able to look back and say, that was all God. But at the time, it won't necessarily feel like that. I had a situation a little bit ago where I was out running some errands and uh, there was a job that I needed done that I just had to do, like pull my own man card and admit that I couldn't do it myself. So it's hard. And so I, I had to hire a guy to help me do this thing. And this guy comes and is helping me. He's about my age and and uh, this is not a high paying thing I'm asking him to do, <laughs> but I was just struck by his kindness. He was so kind to me. He was he was helping me uh, help him in a way that he didn't need to. He was including me. Um, I could just tell like this guy was a hustler and that he took pride in his work. And I just was admiring this guy as he's doing his work. And uh, toward the end of that, we're just making small talk. And he asked, by the way, what do you do? I hate this question. Because <laughs> I instantly get relegated to another category of human being. And uh, he says, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And sure enough, the behavior was instantly more awkward. The dynamics were just instantly more awkward. But not for the reason I thought. He is about finished with his job. In fact, he is finished with his job. He comes up to me and says, by the way, um, before I leave, since you're a pastor, I have a question I wanted to ask you that I've kind of always wanted an answer to. This guy is a sweet, meek, kind person. And he says, I was repeatedly molested as a child. What, what do you think God thought about that? And then he said, I, I want to believe. Like, I do. I go to church sometimes with my wife. What do you think God thought of that? Why did God let that happen? How am I supposed to believe that God loves me if he let that happen? I won't get into the answer I provided. I guarantee you in that moment, though, everything I was that was happening inside of me trying to, because I did wind up sharing the gospel with him and it ended very well. I, I didn't end with a sinner's prayer or anything like that, but this conversation ended very well. I, it ended surprisingly well. In that moment, 
all I could think of was, I got to give this guy a good answer, right? It, was, it felt like work. And it certainly didn't feel like welcomed work. An hour later, the pieces start to fall into place. And I realize this thing that I couldn't do, that I just couldn't get done on my own, was part of God's plan from all of time to create this, what I thought was an aggravating incapacity on my part. To, to connect me and this man. And the truth is, I don't know that this man could have, I, I, well, I, here's the honest answer. God wanted me to be the guy to answer that question. And as it was happening, it just felt like work. It just felt like choice. It just felt, I felt weak. I felt insufficient. But after it happened, I could see God was providentially at work in both of our lives to bring us to that moment. And so that's the first thing we see in this text, that God's sovereign choice is happening on both sides of the ball, to, to those whom he will save and to those whom he will send. But there's something else we see on both sides of the ball, and that is we see constraint on both sides. Not only is there choice on both sides, there is constraint on both sides. See, those who are not yet saved, their constraint is obvious to us with the, you know, with the amazing theology that we have. Uh, uh, their constraint is obvious to us. The Bible says that those who are, with, who are without Christ are not only sinners, but they are enslaved to sin. And that they are born dead in their sins and trespasses. And because they're dead in their sins and trespasses, their only choice is how they will sin, but not whether or not they will. They're dead in their sins and trespasses and can't choose God unless he first chooses them. And so there's constraint on that side of the ball. Those who need to hear the gospel are constrained. They're enslaved. But again, this is such a unique text because we see Paul's constraint here. And what's his constraint? He's afraid. He's got a limitation too. His limitation is, and we don't know how far this limitation has been developed, but Jesus sees it as a problem because he goes to him and says, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. We can see that Paul himself has a limitation. And so Jesus, again, on both sides of the ball, is working in these constraints. And let's just be clear about this because I think this is something we can all identify with. His fear, Paul's fear, if Christ did not intervene, would keep him from speaking and cause him to be silent. And this is something we should know a little about. What is the number one reason for our neglect in sharing the gospel with other people? It's the very same thing we see with Paul in Acts 18.9. telling you, this is a very remarkable passage. Paul knows this about himself, by the way. The distance between us and Paul is maybe exaggerated so that we don't feel like we have to be as faithful as Paul. Uh, maybe. Maybe we're making him a superhero so we don't have to try to learn how to fly. I don't know. But Ephesians 6, almost at the very end of the book, he writes, Pray also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We're going to talk again more about this next week. But Paul understands that fear is a constraint for him, that he should speak the word boldly, but that's not always his first inclination. You know how in Romans 7 he says, the things I wish I would do, I don't do, and so on and so forth? Certainly, certainly amongst the list of things Paul wished he had done, did not do. It would include instances in which he struggled with this issue. You'll see more of that as we progress. Paul is aware of something that I just want us to be aware of, and that is a lack of courage is more common than we realize, and it threatens our obedience to Jesus' call to speak for him and to speak up for him. I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us would say that this is the main reason why we are infrequently bold and intentional. Well, there's, there's choice on both sides and there's constraint on both sides, but this is the really good news. There's change on both sides. There's a third kind of symmetry here, and that is, is that Jesus is changing everybody in the story. He's working on both sides of the math problem, I guess you could say, and he's changing all of it. Obviously, there is change in the lives of those whom Jesus is going to save. When Jesus says, I have many here who are my people, um, I want you to read another verse, or I want you to think of another verse, and that's Paul's description to the, uh, to the Corinthians about the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, or revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, and such were some of you. Okay, let's get all of our verses in order here. Before this transformation happens, we have our text in Acts 18. Okay? When Jesus says, I have many in this city who are mine, you know, what he's saying is, don't be afraid. Don't be silent, dot, dot, dot. I have many here, and some of them right now are enslaved to sins like sexual immorality and idolatry, and homosexuality, and some are thieves, and drunkards, and revilers. But when you, Paul, when you share the gospel with them, because I've already chosen them, because they're already on layaway, they will be washed, and sanctified, and justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God. We know there's change happening in the lives of those who will be saved. Of course, we see in this text, and this is why it's so remarkable, the change that's always necessary in the lives of those who are going to be sent. See, Paul is constrained. And the thing about fear is it's like the, it's like the guest you invite to your house who won't leave. It's like once you let him spend one night, it's hard to get rid of him. This fear is crouching at the door, 
threatening to constrain Paul's ministry of gospel proclamation. And Jesus doesn't want to let, he doesn't want Paul to let fear have dominion over him. So know those are well past this moment in our lives. And fear has its own guest room in our heart. And we need to work on that. But Paul is God's chosen instrument. So are you. Therefore, Jesus is not going to let Paul sit this one out. And he's not going to let you sit it out either. He isn't going to pass over Paul here and find someone else because here in this instance, Paul is God's chosen instrument. The same goes with you. Here's the whole summary of this sermon. Sin doesn't stop God's sovereign purposes. Sin doesn't stop God's sovereign purposes. Your sin, their sin, does not stop God's sovereign purposes. He just changes people. That's what he does. When an obstacle of sin and disobedience comes, he just changes us. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that God disciplines those whom he loves. We will be changed. This is kind of like when your kids are toddlers. And, uh, well, this is how we did it. When our kids were young and they didn't want to eat dinner, we would say, well, this is, what's, this is the next meal that will go into your mouth. You can eat it now, tomorrow, three days from now. This is the next meal that will go into your mouth. And it's usually 20 minutes later, except for Brooke. <laughs> I think she fought and won a few of those battles. <laughs> God is uh, so faithful because he doesn't cause us to fail test so much as he just makes us take it over and over and over and over again. You are God's, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are God's chosen instrument to share the glory of Jesus with other people, particular individuals. He has divine appointments established from the foundation of the earth. And their sin isn't going to stop that. And neither is yours. He's just going to work on us until this thing is dealt with. Jesus won't leave you alone in your fear. And he won't let you just go on and find someone else to do the work he has appointed. That's a misnomer. It's not what God does. His choice of you as an instrument is just as fixed as his choice was to save you or someone else. Therefore, evangelism always involves some kind of change on both sides of the ball so that God gets all of his glory because he's changing everybody involved. He's overcoming constraints on both sides. He's choosing on both sides. It's all him. And the way that he changes us also, I want to take pains to say, it doesn't feel mystical most of the time. Again, while we see Paul reasoning and persuading the lost in verse 4, that's really what we see Jesus doing with Paul in verses 9 and 10. He's just reasoning with Paul and persuading Paul. What we see Paul do is preaching to the lost, and what we see Jesus do is preaching to Paul. And the message is the same message which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is, I am with you. 
So what is keeping you from being a faithful witness? And are you ready for Jesus to come to you and deal with it? Well, it worked. It always works because it's God doing the work. He goes to Paul, verses 9 10. He reasons and persuades with him, persuades him. In verse 11, God wins. And it says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, earlier we said that though God's sovereign election is clear on both sides, it looks very human when you're actually experiencing it. And the same is true of the change that will take place in your life related to this issue of sin. Don't expect some magical vanishing of this sin. Expect it to look like work. I can prove that to you. I can actually prove to you that not only, not only will it look like work, it will not look like much. I can tell you, I can show this to you a little in a minute, that Paul's fear was diminished, but it did not disappear. He is, he is slightly less afraid. Just enough to keep him from being silent. That's the amount of fear that gets removed. The, the amount that was keeping him silent. There's still fear there. Okay, let me, let me prove this to you. Verse 1 of chapter 18, we know that he is in Corinth. Verses 9 through 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go on speaking, do not be silent. I have many in this city. Verse 11, Jesus' sermon worked, because it always does. And he stays a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And now we can add another text to our data set, and that is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, where we see Paul's description of what it was like after this Christ-like pep, this, this pep talk from Jesus, of what it felt like when he obeyed and stayed and spoke. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. If you read 1 Corinthians 2, without understanding Acts 18, you almost get the sense that all of 1 Corinthians 2 was Paul just being strategic. But then when you read Acts 18 and you realize, no, no. And that would be a, a bit hypocritical, a bit, a bit playing, acting for Paul. No, he wasn't faking his weakness and fear and trembling. It was there all along. That's what Jesus was dealing with. And he had dealt with it just enough. This is key. This is key to what you should expect in God's transformation of any area of your life. It was just enough transformation to get him to take the next step of obedience. Um, How much practical change did Paul, did Jesus work in Paul? Just enough. There's this new book that I hope to read, and I just heard the podcast on it. The book's called It's Good to Be a Man, a handbook for godly masculinity. And I was listening to the podcast, and the guy was just talking about how he tells men about what biblical change looks like. What does it look like when God's changing you? And I thought this analogy was great. He said it's sort of like a chain that's fallen off a bicycle. Okay? So 
in your brokenness and your fear and your disobedience, the chain's falling off the bicycle. Well, how do you put a chain back on a bicycle? Like literally one link and then start pedaling. Two links and start pedaling. He says, you put a couple links back on the wheel and you push forward and then momentum takes place. And suddenly you don't just have two links on the bike. You've got the whole chain back where it needs to be. And what we see Jesus doing with Paul is here's enough courage to not be silent. But not enough courage, and this is key, not enough courage so that when you encounter these Corinthians, they are tempted to be impressed by you. That's the root sin behind the fear that keeps us silent, the desire to be impressive. The minute we are okay being weak, we have just enough courage to engage. And that's what Paul's ministry was. It was all, that was, that's what it was. It was just enough for the next night in prison. It was just enough to swim to shore after the shipwreck. It was just enough after the last lash to brace yourself for the next one. And it was just enough for the next conversation. And that's the way God wanted it. Because this whole text isn't just choice on both sides and Constraint on both sides and change on both sides. This text is Christ on both sides. He is on display. He is the star of the story. He is the one who is being made much of. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He wants to use you and he will. No one else will do or the mission he has for you. And your sin has never been an obstacle to God. And if you think it is, you're in trouble. Or you don't think you sin as much as you really do. Your weakness is not a bug, it's a feature because the glorious thing happening in you isn't you being impressive, but Christ being made glorious and known to the world. The idea is is that by the time you walk up to the person you're supposed to tell tell Jesus to, you will have had just fresh taste of Jesus's changing power on your own lips, because you will just had to go through a little mini conversion, a little mini sanctification moment where he gives you just enough 
to go do the thing. And when you go to that person, you smell like change. You smell like gospel change because you have just been changed. And that's not only when you're, and when that happens, you're not only reciting gospel facts. You're doing what Paul, what Peter says that we're supposed to do. And that is we were not one of, we were once not a people. Now we are a people and we proclaim his excellent glories. When you smell like gospel change, because that's the edge of your life. It's just always the edge between I can't, I barely can. When you smell like gospel change, gospel dependence, when you smell like you were just in a room with Jesus and he had to have his hands on your shoulders and look you in the eye and say, we're going to do it. (laughs) We're going to do it. Come on, let's go do this. When you live that way, then tell people about the gospel and see what happens. I guarantee you this, they will not be impressed with you. See, the real choice, like there's all these weird things going on in the world right now in churches. And one of the things that's going on that's sort of been brewing for years and years and years is God is separating those who need to be impressed by a church and those who want to be impressed by Christ. And he's doing that with believers too. It's really the same thing, right? Don't expect to become fearless. Your life is not a pink Pinterest meme. Stop trying to be fearless. Stop trying to be empowered. Stop, be weak. The weakness that remains is God's grace both to you and to the world. So I would like to just conclude by asking you a question. And that is, would you like Jesus to do for you what he did for Paul in this text? I'd like you to answer that question just just to yourself. Would you like for Jesus to do to you what he did to Paul in this text, knowing where that leads, knowing why he's doing it and what he's doing it for, knowing that this is a sending work. Would you like Jesus to do for you what he did for Paul? Let me pray for us. Well, Jesus, when we read your gospels, there's a lot of times where you ask, do you believe I can heal you? And there's also times where, like Peter, people saying, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. I don't think I want to walk with you. I don't think I want to live this life that you've called me to live. I don't think I want to pick up my cross daily and deny myself and follow you. No, I think I'd like something that kind of feels like Christianity, but doesn't involve that. And so, Lord, I just pray you give us the faith to actually say to you individually, yeah, I I want you to do this to me. I want you to help me to not be so afraid so that I can be more obedient. But I understand, Lord, that the way you do this is not to make me, uh, to, to transform me from being a timid, cowardly person to a superhero like that, that, that's not, that doesn't display you just get, make me a 
timid person with a little more faith. We just pray that you would give us grace to ask you for that. I know if we ask you, I know if anyone here asks you for that, you'll do it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being patient with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, for communion today, I just